A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Eric Halsey from the Bulgarian History Podcast. The Byzantines stand out as one of the great empires of history, an empire both famous and infamous, an empire which spent centuries locked in titanic struggles with similarly famous enemies, the Arabs, the Persians, and many others. But there was another people, a less well-known people. The Bulgarians are about to enter the world stage in the history of Byzantium. In them, the Byzantines will find the greatest of friends and the worst of enemies. Each will come within a hair of destroying each other more than once. I have no doubt Robin is going to do an excellent job discussing this history. But for a more in-depth perspective on Bulgarian history from the beginning till now, and this incredible relationship with the Byzantines, check out the Bulgarian History Podcast. Now, time for Robin to resume the history of Byzantium. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 53, The Bulgars Are Coming. Last time, we covered the earliest and greatest challenge that Constantine IV faced during his reign. Those land and sea battles with the Arabs that seemed to be building toward a siege of Constantinople. Before we move on to what Constantine did with the peace which he'd won, we need to cover some things which didn't fit into the narrative of the last episode. Constantine's father, Constance II, had been busy on many fronts during his final years. As you know, he'd campaigned against the Slavs, then the Lombards, and then he'd sent men to reinforce Africa. This concentration of activity in the West had stirred up a response. As we covered in the last episode, the Arabs continued their attacks on Africa and directed one assault against Sicily. While Constantine IV was preoccupied with the potential siege of his capital, the Slavs and the Lombards both reacted to the imperial meddling as well, especially now that the armies had returned home. Apparently, Constance II had promoted a Slav chieftain named Perbundus and had given him some kind of imperial title. This was standard Roman operating procedure going back centuries. While Muawiyah's forces were still on the move, the emperor got word that Perbundus was plotting to capture Thessalonica. The emperor had the chieftain executed, and his tribe, furious at this, began to besiege the Balkan city in retaliation. I hope I can give some proper attention to Thessalonica at some point, 
And if you're still in doubt as to where it is, it sits in northern Greece on the sea and was fitted with large walls. So far in our story, the city has survived multiple Slav and Avar attempts to capture it, which is a proud record given how many other cities had succumbed. Once again, the Thessalonians would survive, but not before they were seriously distressed by the ordeal. Constantine was so preoccupied with the Arabs that he sent very little support to the besieged citizens. Meanwhile, the Lombards attempted to capture the whole of southern Italy. Italy has too been relatively neglected on this podcast since the murder of Maurice, for obvious reasons. The general pattern of activity had been for bursts of aggression from the Lombards as they attempted to capture a new town or settlement, followed by the signing of a peace treaty with the Exarch. A new Lombard king, like rulers everywhere, would want to demonstrate his worthiness to rule. But the Byzantines were always keen to remind the Germans that they still had the potential to strike back. So long as the Romans controlled the sea, the Lombards would always have to make an accommodation with them. But as you probably know, Constance II would be the last emperor to seriously campaign in Italy for many a century. Sensing that the imperial army would not be returning, the Lombards marched into Calabria, capturing the key towns of Brodisium and Tarentum. Calabria, as you may know, was the name of the heel of the Italian boot. Many of the local Italians fled at this onslaught and made their way to Italy's toe, known then as Brutium. So many moved there that the area eventually became known as Calabria, as it is known today. Constantine left the Lombards to the Exarch, who had little hope of retaking the lost territory, but didn't suffer further losses. However, the emperor did respond to the Slav attacks. Once peace was secured in the east, the Byzantine army marched out to Thessalonica and defeated the tribes living nearby. This allowed those who'd fled the city during the siege to head out and reoccupy their farms and homes. All but that last event took place before the signing of the peace treaty with Muawiyah in 679. The icing on the cake for Constantine was that the following year the great caliph died. Muawiyah was succeeded by his son Yazid, which might seem perfectly logical on the surface, but the caliphate was not yet organized under the traditional structure of a royal family. The thought that Muawiyah's family were now the undisputed leaders of Islam caused plenty of outrage, both from members of their own tribe, who felt left out, from those still loyal to the house of Ali, and to those who felt that choosing a new caliph should involve some other criteria than your biology. Yazid was sucked into another civil war and would die on campaign in 683. The Arabs, it seemed, would be looking inward again for some time. When Constance II had been gifted peace 20 years earlier, he had decided to reorganise the army. With that work successfully done, it left his son with the chance to reorder that other vital part of the state's defence, its relationship with God. As you know, during his last years, Heraclius had approved a new doctrine which he forlornly hoped might bring about the Christian unity 
which men of his age had constantly sought after. Monothaletism stated that Jesus had two natures, but only one will. It was a formula which pleased only a few. The Monophysites were not interested in Jesus having two natures, and those in the West were not willing to endorse the idea of his one will. Constance II had stuck to the formula, or at least had tried to calm the issue down with official neutrality. He did not benefit much from this position, because as you know, both his Italian and African exarchs had rebelled, claiming at least some justification through their defense of the Council of Chalcedon, as in the council which had originally declared that Jesus had two natures. Constantine called for an ecumenical council to be held in the capital in the autumn of 680, where he hoped to put an end to the discord which monothyletism had caused. For those keeping count, this would be the sixth ecumenical council, i.e. a council of all the bishops in the empire. The fifth one was held back in 553, when Justinian forced through the condemnation of the three chapters in his own attempt to bring about church unity. Because our sources for this period are not very detailed, we aren't sure of Constantine's motivations. It's easy to conclude that the emperor felt he could please those in the West by restoring the basic principles of Chalcedon, now that all the Monophysites were under the rule of the Arabs, and certainly that would have played a part in his calculations. However, that's a little simplistic, because the Eastern churches had not gone dark, They were still out there holding services and preaching the gospel and making important decisions for themselves, and news and letters still cross borders, even in times of war. And officially, the Romans had not given up claims to rule the eastern Mediterranean, even if Constantine's experience would suggest that any reconquest was a far-fetched idea at this point. Of course, we don't need to search too far for motives for Christian unity. It's been a consistent concern of every emperor since the beginning of this podcast. However, the issue I'm driving toward is the question of how influential the army were in the decision to ditch monothyletism. And I don't have a good answer. In an age when men genuinely believed that God's favour could sway the events of war, the men of the army had a vested interest in uniting all Christians. If Christian unity was pleasing to God, and that pleasure would help them turn back the Arab armies, then they would definitely have an opinion on monothyletism. So on the one hand, you could say Heraclius had lost the eastern provinces, and Heraclius promulgated monothyletism. So let's get rid of it. But on the other hand, didn't we just defeat the Arabs on land and at sea? Maybe that was reward for the house of Heraclius sticking by their new doctrine. Although all of this might seem obscure, the relationship between the army and the emperor is a vital one in this period of Roman history. Don't forget that in addition to the two exarchs rebelling, you had Saborius's uprising, you had the assassination of Constance II, as well as Valentine's attempt to seize the throne when Constance was still a boy. Loyalty to the regime established by Heraclius was strong enough to keep his grandson and great-grandson in power, but it was a close-run thing. If the army kept being defeated, then they would increasingly look for a solution amongst their own ranks, rather than turn to their discredited rulers. 
As bishops across the empire began making their way to the capital, the news emerged that the emperor was pushing aside his two brothers and making it clear that his only successor would be his young son, Justinian II. When they heard this news, some men from the Anatolikon theme objected and marched to Chrysopolis opposite the capital and sent word to the emperor that they believed he should rule jointly with his brothers. Their logic, as reported, was that a trinity rules in the heavens, and therefore so should one on earth. Hmm. Constantine did bow to public pressure in that he restored his brother's inheritance temporarily, but he dealt swiftly with the soldiers. He invited their commanding officers to come to the capital to discuss the matter, and then had them executed. Or, in the far more cutting words of Edward Gibbon, the prospect of their bodies hanging on the gibbet in the suburb of Sikai reconciled their companions to the unity of the reign of Constantine. It's a very curious story because I have a hard time believing that the troops would really make such a demand, or that that would be their reasoning. Now, of course, Roman armies agitated for their own commanders to become emperor all the time, and Constance II had benefited from such an army coup, pushing aside his uncle Heraclonus back in the 640s. However, I don't know what the troops would have gained from maintaining the two younger emperors in their roles. Troops were paid bonuses on the accession of a new ruler, but these boys had been invested by their father a long time ago. Perhaps there was yet another military rebellion brewing, and the story about the Trinity is merely an invention to explain a more complicated issue. Perhaps, and this is purely speculation, those soldiers had an opinion on the issue of monothaletism. It is suggested by some that pressure from within the army pushed Constantine to try and ditch the unpopular doctrine, and the opposite is argued for as well that it was elements within the military who tried to deter the emperor from renouncing his great-grandfather's theology. There certainly was a party who favoured monothaletism amongst the army and the clergy, as we shall see when we get into the next century. But sadly, we're not likely to get much closer to an answer on how these parties interacted over the calling of the Ecumenical Council. The important takeaways from all of this are that the military's role in the affairs of state were increasing. As the empire lent more and more on its armed forces for its very survival, military leaders would increasingly see the potential in adding political power to their martial responsibilities. And, of course, both military and civilian leaders were looking to the heavens, hoping to find a theological formula that would bring victory on the battlefield. The Sixth Council, and the third at Constantinople, was a long affair, and stretched from 680 all the way to September 681. It was acknowledged as truly ecumenical, because delegates from the papacy were in attendance, as were the patriarchs in exile of Antioch and Jerusalem. There was a lot of debate about monothletism before the decision was reached that Christ had two wills and two natures, one human, one divine, thus essentially reconfirming Chalcedonian orthodoxy. Before the council reached its conclusions, though, the empire was faced by a fresh invasion. 
Not from the east this time, but from the west. The Bulgars were coming. The Bulgars were a regular feature on this podcast during the days of Anastasius and Justinian. There was a split in the history books I read as to whether the horse archers who periodically raided the empire or were employed as soldiers should be called Bulgars or Huns. The reality is that the Byzantines were very poor at distinguishing between one group of steppe nomads and another, though it's hardly a grievous fault because the steppes were very rarely home to homogenous groups, but instead saw a never-ending amalgamation of one group with another. The best we can do is give a name to one group based on how their leaders were identified in the settled communities. So as you may remember, there were various identified groups with the name Bulgar attached around 600 AD. The Kutriger, Utiger, and Onogar Bulgars were the main three, all living north of the Black Sea. In 600, the first two groups were riders in the train of the Kargan, the Kargan of the Avars. However, since the failure of the great siege of Constantinople in 626, the Avars' power had been in decline. I mentioned at the time that various Slav tribes soon slipped out of the Kaganate, and during the 630s, the Onogar Bulgars defeated the Avars in battle and broke free from the Kargan's rule as well. Other tribes doubtless drifted into the orbit of a now independent series of Bulgar tribes, But these tribes were sandwiched between the fading power of the Avars, who still dominated the great Hungarian plain, and the growing power of the Khazars in the east. You know the Khazars, the valuable allies that Heraclius turned to during the war with Persia. The Khazars began to subjugate their western Bulgar neighbours during the 660s and 670s. Some fell under the Khazar yoke, while others moved north toward the Volga River. Some ended up back under Avar rule, and some made it all the way to Dalmatia, where they accepted pay from the Exarch of Ravenna. For our story, however, the most important group was the one that crossed the Danube in 681 and settled in the Balkans. The land in the far northeast of the Balkans, just south of the river, is known as the Dobruja. Its relatively flat grasslands were a good spot for steppe nomads to take refuge, but of course was technically still thought of as imperial territory. The empire had been able to be relaxed about its lack of presence in the Balkans because no state existed there. The various Slav tribes were a nuisance, but were no threat to the walls of Constantinople. A large tribe of horse archers was a different story. With the Muslim civil war still raging, Constantine felt he was in a position to gather the theme armies for one campaign that summer to crush the new menace before they could put down roots. A force comprised of men from all five themes, including the navy, made their way north with the emperor in command. The Bulgars wisely retreated in the face of this well-organized campaign. They created defensive fortifications around a camp in the marshy land around the Danube Delta. This put the Imperial Army and Navy in a difficult position. The Bulgars could receive supplies from the north unless the Romans fully surrounded them, which was never going to happen, as that would mean sending troops north of the Danube. To the south, the army would be shot to pieces if it attempted to force its way toward the Bulgar troops. 
And of course, this was meant to be one swift campaign. Constantine had no intention of stripping Anatolia permanently of its armies. That would be madness. As the siege dragged on, the emperor began to suffer some form of discomfort, possibly gout, and decided to take a ship south to the city of Mesembria for more comfortable quarters. The story that the histories report is that when the theme soldiers heard that the emperor had left, they panicked and began to flee. That spread to the rest of the army, who retreated as well. This again sounds a little simplistic to me. It may be that there was some kind of miscommunication, or that an orderly retreat was ordered, but that it went wrong. Either way, you know what happens when you run from a horse archer. The Bulgar king Asperuch ordered his men to pursue the fleeing army, and suffering a steady stream of casualties as they went, the Romans ignominiously fled to Constantinople. A campaign that had set out to dislodge a new neighbour had ended up entrenching one. Asperuch set up his own carganate, bringing the local Romans and Slavs under his rule and giving his new state a natural frontier with Byzantium along the line of the Hemus Mountains. The map which accompanied episode 9 will help with this, but those mountains are about halfway up the Balkans. In practice, this left the Roman administrative position no different than it had been before. They had lost touch with the northern half of the peninsula a long time ago, and their control of Thrace was not being contested. However, the arrival of an organised enemy in the west was a real strategic problem. The Roman army could have campaigned again against the Bulgars, but with the steppe warriors now watching the mountain passes and showing good awareness of defensive geography, it would clearly take several years to fully subdue them. And with the dire threat that the Arabs presented in the east, the empire just couldn't afford to take that chance. They needed the theme armies at full strength for when the Muslim threat resumed. So Constantine sent word to Asperuch asking for peace, and the now Bulgar Khan agreed. The treaty would see the empire pay the Bulgars an annual tribute to keep them on their side of the mountains. This was seen in Constantinople as no different from the traditional cash sent to federate allies, and the Bulgars were thought of as a problem to be dealt with down the road. It's important to keep in mind just because we know that the Bulgars are here to stay doesn't mean we should treat this moment as more significant than it was viewed by the imperial establishment at the time. You can, of course, find out more about the Bulgars and Bulgarians on the Bulgarian History Podcast. In the meantime, the Ecumenical Council finished its business and the delegates returned home. The council, by the way, ended up condemning all the theologians involved in monoenergism and monothelitism, including the long-dead Sergius. The success of the council left Constantine's position strengthened, despite the retreat in the Balkans, and the emperor felt sufficiently secure to announce again that his brothers were being deposed and that only his son would inherit the title of emperor. To ensure that no one would argue, Constantine had his two brothers rounded up and their noses slit. It's a cruel fate, no doubt. But as you know, leaving men alive who have claims to the throne is a bad idea. And as painful as it was for all concerned, this mutilation was seen as a more humane way of determining the succession. 
there was also more drama in the Balkans soon after. If you've ever wondered what happens to Roman citizens dragged off as slaves, then here is a weird and wonderful example. I'm sure you'll remember the Avar's various raids during Heraclius' reign and the carrying off of various people, which ensued, including the Blues and Greens who had gathered to entertain the Kargan. Prisoners taken in large numbers were often settled together. Remember the better Antioch of Kusro. They spoke the same language and understood the same kind of farming techniques or whatever skills they possessed. So apparently the Roman prisoners taken in the early 600s were living in one large tribe under Avar rule until the 680s. Sent to rule over them was a Bulgar chief named Kuba. Kuba apparently led a revolt against the Avars and took his people south into the Balkans. This tribe were a mix, but many of them were descendants of Roman citizens, and so they asked Kuba to take them back towards the empire. This strange news greeted Constantine, who agreed to grant them lands around Thessalonica. He couldn't entirely trust people who had grown up amongst the Avars, but perhaps they would make better subjects than the Slavs of Thrace. To help protect the capital from the potential menaces of the Balkans, the Empire also created the Theme of Thrace, with its headquarters at Arcadiopolis. Apparently this didn't mean mass recruiting was going on, but simply a redesignation of some of the men of the Opsikion theme. It was now the winter of 683, and news reached the emperor that Yazid had died in Arabia. His young son died the following year, and with the caliphate in turmoil, Constantine decided to attack. The fleet raided the Syrian coast, apparently sacking Acre, Caesarea and Ascalon, though quite who they were attacking is not elaborated on. Although the Arabs had a strong presence in Syria, the majority of city dwellers would still be former Roman Christians. The Matraites were loose at the same time, so it can't have been pleasant to be sandwiched between the two that summer. By 685, the emperor had sent troops to reoccupy Cilicia and parts of Armenia. The Christian princes in Iberia and Armenia once again switched their allegiance back to Byzantium. Muawiyah's cause was taken up by Marwan and then his son Abd al-Malik. In 685, the latter offered Constantine a renewed peace treaty to keep him out of the civil war. The new terms were for a horse and a slave every day that the peace held, together with a thousand gold coins. The emperor took the deal. That autumn, though, the emperor would pass away from dysentery, we suspect, and I'm going to say he was 37 years old, but others report him being even younger. Either way, he had ruled the empire for 17 relatively successful years. We know as little about Constantine as we did about his father, so it's difficult to properly assess him. The key event of his reign was the victory over Muawiyah's forces in 674, and we don't know if the emperor had any direct hand in that, or if it was just good luck or would have happened anyway given the conditions, or if Constance II's endorsement of the themes was the key to the success. 
Anyway, Constantine takes the credit for his successful management of the army and rode his luck with the Caliphate's internal dissension to secure two favourable peace treaties. At the time, he was given a lot of credit, at least in church circles, for the successful banishment of monothelitism. But sadly, we know that it was not to bring victory to his armies anytime soon. Perhaps we should reserve judgment on the emperor until we meet his son, because we know much more about Justinian II than we do his father. And perhaps the behaviour of the son will reflect somewhat on the character of his father. Perhaps. Constantine did leave us with a visual epitaph, however, which was very considerate of him. There is another mosaic in Ravenna, like the famous one of Justinian and Theodora, showing Constantine the Fourth. This mosaic is also in the apse of a church, the Basilica of Saint Apollinaire in Classe. The church was built back in Justinian's day, so presumably this was commissioned to curry political favour with the imperial regime. I'm not 100% sure on this, but I believe the mosaic celebrates the granting of concessions to the Bishop of Ravenna, those concessions meaning some freedom from papal control, and I think those concessions were granted by Constance II during his time in Italy, but presumably he died while the mosaic was being created, and so the new emperor took his place. Because we know so much less about Constantine than we did about Justinian, their mosaic is less famous, and its somewhat generic portrait of the emperor tells us little about him. But hey, we cling to any representations of the emperors that come our way, and you can see a picture of this at the website and on Facebook. You can also find out more about the Bulgars and the state of Bulgaria, which it would turn into, by listening to Eric Halsey's Bulgarian History Podcast. The Bulgars are going to be around from now until 1453 and beyond, and definitely play an important role in the history of Byzantium, so check it out. You can find it on iTunes or at bghistorypodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening and for sending in your end-of-the-century questions. You've probably only got one more episode until the century ends in our narrative, so if there's anything you want to know, get in touch. 